me. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philemon. Philemon. So in God's providence, uh, what we would have been expecting to start uh, in the book of Genesis, we're actually going to I'm, I'm filling in, in a sense, for Pastor Sean, although not in God's providence. The Lord knew this was going to happen. So we began the book of Philemon uh, actually in July, July 3rd. And uh, because I preach infrequently in the morning, I preach infrequently in the evening too. I preach infrequently. Uh, but we're actually, I'm, in my mind, I like to work through a book when I'm preaching. So uh, we, we began Philemon back in July. Uh, we will be looking in Philemon chapter, uh, first chapter, because it's only one chapter, uh, in verse 8 uh, today we'll be reading. And in, in about a month or so, uh, I'll be preaching again in the morning and we'll finish the book of Philemon. So we'll get to see uh, the whole book. It's so short that it's easy to miss it. Um, it follows Titus, like, just like Pastor Sean has been preaching through Titus. And it's just sequentially the next book of the Word of God. But it's so short, it's just one chapter. So you could easily just skip right over it and think, what does this have for me? Well, it's the Word of God, just as much as every other book of the Bible. Every other Word of God is necessary for me to draw strength, for me to draw life for me to find a vital relationship with the living God. And so we need all of the word of God or we will surely fail. We will surely stand before a judge who will require of us our very lives for eternity. So we do well to heed the word of God and pay careful attention to it. So we'll be reading in the English Standard Version, Philemon chapter 1, verse 8 through verse 16. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this purpose, for, for this perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Please pray with me. Our God and Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, take these words 
plant them deeply in our hearts. Father, for hearts that, that need to be turned from stone to flesh, Lord, you do that. For hearts that are, that are hard and calloused, Lord, you can soften them up with the oil of your Holy Spirit. Father, so that these words would be planted deeply, would bear fruit, and would bring glory to you and great joy to each one of the hearers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why do you do the right thing? Why do you do the right thing? If you think about it, uh, in just in terms of, of management philosophy styles, uh, often you'll hear, well, there's the carrot and there's the stick, right? The carrot is what you dangle in front of the horse so that the horse will follow and do the thing that you want the horse to do. And so there's the carrot, but there's also the stick. The stick is if you don't do what's required, you're going to feel the consequences. You're going to feel the weight of the law. So often we wait for carrot or stick in order to do the thing that's required. And yet, these are external means that move us. These are not what's called obedience from the heart. Waiting for the carrot is simply waiting for somebody to, to dangle something that I like to get me to do what I'm doing. Likewise, waiting for the stick, it's just another form of slavery. In both ways, these are external motivations. But God desires something greater. He desires an obedience that springs from the heart, an obedience of gratitude. See, the, the really the more important question to ponder is what do you do when nobody's watching? What, is your, what does your life look like when nobody is watching? And you'll get to see who you serve, whom you serve. You see, in this short letter, the, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to Philemon, is going to help us ponder these questions and help us consider what does it look like to live a life for love's sake, for love's sake. He's going to show us what does Paul do for love's sake. And then he's going to ask, make a request of Philemon. And what does he request Philemon to do for love's sake? And then lastly, we will look at what Christ has done for love's sake. The, the letter as a whole demonstrates that Paul knows Philemon well. Earlier in verse 1, we see that Philemon is a beloved brother. He's a beloved brother to both Paul and Timothy. And then also Philemon is a fellow worker. Together they are working on behalf of Christ for the sake of the gospel. They're fellow workers. In verse 17, Philemon is called a partner for the sake of the gospel. And then verse 19, Paul notes that Philemon owes the Apostle Paul, his very own self, his very own life. And then lastly, in verse 21, Paul is confident that this request that he's making of Philemon will be responded to. And we'll consider that request today. We'll consider it starting with the, the word accordingly. 
in your English Standard Version in verse 8. Accordingly, see, Paul sees fruit in Philemon's life. He sees the result of obedience to the gospel, the obedience of faith. In verse 5, Philemon's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his love for all the saints is evident. Paul has heard this. He has reports of it. He's seen the results of faith in Christ. And then the fact that he's heard that the saints' hearts have been refreshed through Philemon's ministry in verse 7. There's evidence. And so Paul says, accordingly, on this basis, because of what I've seen, here's what I'm going to ask of you. Paul makes a request of Philemon. Now, what does Paul do for love's sake? In verse 9, he says, I prefer to appeal to you. I prefer to appeal. He uses the word preferred actually twice in this very short letter. He prefers to appeal. Now, remember, who is Paul? In verse 9, he says, I'm an old man. Now, we know Paul is speaking physically, but he's speaking more than physically. He's a mature man in the faith. We also know Paul is an apostle. He is an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. He has particularly and personally been called into ministry by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's an apostle. Paul also says he's now a prisoner for Jesus Christ, for, on behalf of, he's serving, he's suffering on behalf of his Lord and Savior. So for these reasons, Paul says, I could command you, Philemon, to do what is required. It would not be above me to do that. He says, in fact, I have enough confidence in Christ that I could simply command you to do what, to, what you need to do and that you would do it. Now, we live in the world. We live in the world, and the, the, the course of this world runs contrary to the kingdom of God. And this course can wrongly influence our thinking. It could affect us in ways that, that distract us from what is the will of God for our lives. So we, we might be tempted to think, well, Paul's saying he could command Philemon. So that sounds like this power play. But see, it's not that at all. That's what the world would tell you. Authority in and of itself is not corrupt because all authority springs from God. It is part of the triune God. He has designed authority. The problem is the corruption in man, the corruption inside us, which is sin. This is the problem. All authority is derived from God. Colossians 1.16 says, God is the creator of all things, both visible and invisible. And as creator, he has the divine privilege to command all obedience, that all of the, all of the design that he has laid out, he understands it best, and only he can determine what, it, what all of creation should do. So we must look to him. Authority structures are, are ordained by the living God to provide order, to provide ultimately to reflect the glory of God in all that is done. We know the command, honor your father and your mother. 
is both a command and a principle that is bound up in all of relationship. Honor your father and mother is not simply speaking of mom and dad, but it's speaking of relationships of authority in all of family and civic life. We know in Ephesians 5, verse 21, the, the general principle, submitting to one another out of reverence to Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another. We have that general principle of believers one to another. But wives, then, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then bond servants, obey your earthly masters. So authority is bound up in all relationships, both in the home, in the church, and in civic life. So Paul could legitimately command Philemon to do what is right as an apostle and as a father in the faith, but he prefers instead to appeal, to appeal. An appeal is to refer an outcome to a superior or to another party so that a decision would be rendered appropriately. So Paul wants to appeal. He's putting the decision before Philemon, in fact, in Philemon's court. We may think that this is something that children do. Dad said no, but let's ask mom. No, actually, mom said no, more likely, let's ask dad, right? But this is not an appeal. This is absolutely not what we should think of as an appeal. Because what that is, is simply the sinful child trying to divide the authority that God has given to father and mother together to shepherd this child. And it is a form of subversion and rebellion even. It's not an appeal. An appeal is to engage the conscience, is to place the word of God before this person so that their conscience is engaged and they respond rightly. Commentators note that the Greek word appeal has a, has a range of verses from a gentle encouragement to a strong exhortation. So in this case, again, Paul is not commanding, but he is passionately persuading Philemon, this is what the word of God desires for you to do. This is what the Lord would have you to do. But Paul is giving the decision to Philemon. Do you only see the Bible as a long series of commands? See, God gives commands, but he gives them in relationship to you. As your creator, he has the divine right to command all of your behavior, all of your thoughts, all of your words, all of your disease, all of your deeds. So we owe him obedience in all things. But he commands you as your redeemer because he's saving you so that you would do his will as a choice, as a response to the love with which he has loved you. So can we see that the, the purpose behind obedience should be from the heart? It should be for love's sake, as we see in Paul's words in verse 9. 
Paul appeals for obedience for love's sake. Paul speaks as a child of God, but he shares the same heavenly father as Philemon. Paul's desire is to see Philemon's life conformed to that of his Lord and Savior. And also Paul makes it clear that he is obeying his master, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that Paul, the prisoner for Christ Jesus, is the one sending this bondservant, Onesimus, back to Philemon, back to his owner. Paul identifies with his master, reminding us, as he told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, he says, you, believer, you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Why do you do what you do? Do you look for the carrot to lead you to the thing that you're supposed to do? Or do you wait for the stick, the consequences to come, to push you to it? Do you just say, well, just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it? Or do you say, well, I do the right thing because it's the right thing and it makes me feel good. And in both cases, this is an external motivation. This is not obedience from the heart. There's a better way. And the better way is to start with the Lord Jesus Christ and to see him. In your, in your bulletin, you'll see a, a poem, just one of the stanzas by William Cooper called Love Constraining to Obedience. Cooper wrote, he said, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Do you live as if it is up to you to fulfill the requirements of the law? And you, you try to fulfill as many of them as you can and nobody's perfect, so you do what you can, and tomorrow you'll try, and you'll try to fulfill some more of the commands of the law. Or do you, or have you, heard the pardoning voice of a Savior who says, I have fulfilled the demands of the law. I have fulfilled all of the requirements that are necessary. Have you recognized that in your own flesh you are unable to please the living God? It is impossible. You need a Savior. A Savior who has fulfilled all of the commands of God and then atoned for your sin, the deficit that you have created by failing to obey your Creator. By faith in Jesus Christ, He changes the slavery that you're living in into childhood. You now have a heavenly father by faith and you have a, a savior who delights to see you grow more and more into the image of himself. Paul told the church in Rome in Romans 6 verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. This was reason to praise God that they had become obedient from the heart. 
and therefore a great joy to the body. Now, what is Philemon asked? Let's look more closely. What is Philemon asked to do for love's sake? I think we should begin with the problem of slavery. And you have the relationship between bondservant and master. And in verse 12, you see Paul sending Onesimus, the slave, the bondservant, back to the master, who is Philemon. So whether your translation says slave, bondservant, it's the same idea. One human being living to serve the needs of another. So you may be wondering, is Paul okay with this? Is this really a good idea? But the question really isn't whether Paul is okay with anything, whether I'm okay with anything. What do the scriptures teach is what we must consider. So I'm only going to briefly note two passages, one Old Testament, one New Testament passage, to consider slavery. Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, we already referred to it earlier quickly. Uh, it expresses a rightly ordered relationship between bondservants and masters. Paul tells the Ephesian church, bondservants, obey your earth, earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart. How? As you would Christ. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters. But masters, he says, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And so he, in the scriptures, we see what is the rightly ordained relationship between a bondservant and a master. The authority structure, again, refers back to the ultimate authority, which is God himself. But secondly, just to be clear, Exodus 21, verse 16, prohibits the kidnapping and sale of another person. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That is forbidden by the word of God, very clearly. Thaddeus Williams put it, put it this way, is there such a thing as systemic injustice? And it depends on how you define it. He says, what would you call slavery in the pre-Civil War America, or Jim Crow laws, or apartheid, or the caste system, or human trafficking. They're all forms of slavery that are forbidden by the word of God. So we know that the Roman system is different than the American system of slavery because it wasn't racially motivated, nor was it perpetual. But Philemon, had the right under Roman law to exact any penalty up to and including death upon Onesimus, the runaway. See, God's priority here is not a cultural revolution. It is a spiritual kingdom that the Lord God is bringing, a kingdom that gradually supplants and overtakes the kingdom of the world one heart at a time one heart at a time. And Paul's focus is on the heart of Philemon.
Paul's priority is discipleship. So he says, Philemon, I'm appealing to you for my child, Onesimus. Now we know Paul doesn't mean physical child, and we know that Paul calls Timothy and he calls Titus uh, children, a true child in the faith, spiritual children. Under Paul's care, Onesimus came to believe and trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Onesimus, the name itself is interesting, and you'll see in some of your footnotes, Onesimus means useful. Paul points that out in verse 11, or beneficial. It's a, he's a benefit. He's of use. And Paul mentions previously he was useless, but now he is useful. The Lord has transformed that relationship. How do they meet? Well, ultimately, the Lord placed Paul and Onesimus together in some manner. And in Colossians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul apparently wrote the letter at the same time as Colossians and then asks Onesimus to take this letter, the letter of Philemon, to his master. And imagine being Onesimus. You're carrying this letter. You're carrying what probably feels like your future in your hands. And he's coming at the mercy, placing himself at the mercy of Philemon, but trusting the Lord with the outcome. What if Onesimus was sending or was being sent into a bad situation? Now think of it this way. It, do we really know this is safe for Onesimus to be sent back? Onesimus is the slave, the bondservant. Philemon is the master. Is this really a good idea? And you might be thinking, and again, in terms of our culture, like what if Philemon was an abuser, right? Is this a bad thing? Now, scripturally, we should qualify. Abuse or oppression, right? This is fundamentally a violation of the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. The, the Westminster Standards express and, and explain how there are many forms of murder. It's not simply a, a competitive sin. It's trying to place yourself over another person, to crush them, to ultimately to take their life from them. And we know that different forms of abuse become more heinous based on <clears throat> the severity of the behavior or the, the duration of it or even the deception that's used. But see, remember, Paul already knows the character of Philemon. He already knows of Philemon's love and faith. He already knows that he can trust Philemon with the outcome. Paul himself has derived much joy and comfort from Philemon's love that we see in verse 7. See, discipleship never puts somebody in harm's way, so to speak. But we must remember that discipleship is never an absence of hardship. Discipleship will include difficulty, suffering, and hardship. See, I like to define the terms of my hard hardship. Like we live in a, in a society, we can set the terms of what kind of hardship I endure. I can, I can pick the gym I want to go to that I want membership in. I can determine when I want to go to this gym or how much time I want to spend at the gym. Even if I hire a personal trainer, 
It's, it's on my terms. All of it is on my terms. But see, a key discipleship verse is Romans 8.28. And Paul actually refers to it very briefly. If you look in verse 15 of Philemon, he says, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. For this, perhaps, this short word, perhaps, Paul's not just saying, well, maybe that's the reason. He's really referring to the principle, such as Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. This, these are the terms of discipleship. If you are trusting the Lord, then you're seeing all the events of life for a kingdom purpose. Very simple definition of suffering that came from Elizabeth Elliot. Suffering is not having something I want, or it's having something I don't want. It's not having something I want. This thing over here, I want it, but I can't have it. That's suffering. But then this other thing that I wish I didn't have, I got it. Like, that's, that's a form of suffering. If you look at your life, you are experiencing all sorts of events, some of which you just wish you didn't have. You wish there was a way to make it go away. These are the terms of discipleship for a believer. This is what, where the Lord has you, the time, the place, the events, and he's doing this, what? For his glory and for your good. Philemon was going to have to relinquish by law what was his. He could demand up to and including the life of Onesimus, the runaway slave. Paul's saying, I'm appealing to you to do the right thing. He was going to have to lose something in order to gain something greater by trusting the Lord. So Paul appeals to Philemon's conscience. Conscience that is informed by the word of God will be strengthened to obey the gospel. But alternately, a weak conscience is going to be prone to sin. How necessary it is to feed upon the word of God daily, to daily be in the word, both receiving it and responding to the Lord and what he's teaching you so that your conscience could be strengthened so that you might fulfill what he's called you to do. Paul told Timothy, another child, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the aim. Paul appeals to Philemon to do what he does for love's sake. And that brings us to what has Christ done? Because all of this without Christ is useless. We have to consider how easy it would have been for Philemon to ask for justice. One commentator says a runaway slave in the Roman society of this period might be punished with any penalty 
the owner chose to impose any penalty. This is within his legal right. He's a Roman citizen. And yet Paul's asking him to take Onesimus back, no longer as a bondservant, verse 16, but as a beloved brother, a brother in Christ. If I only look at what I lose, I miss what the Lord can do in and through me. But how sad it is that I settle for so little in my own strength. There are so many things we do, we can do in our own strength. We settle for so much less than what the Lord would do in and through us. One commentator put it this way, all believers are saints and Onesimus, as Philemon is about to find out, is now a believer. By mentioning Philemon's love toward all the saints, which you see in verse 5, for which Paul thanks God, Paul implicitly sets an expectation of Philemon to love Onesimus. Philemon, you've loved all the saints. Onesimus is a saint. Guess what? You get to love him too. But you're going to lose something in the process. Jesus said it like this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how has Jesus loved you? Look back in verse 9. For love's sake. See, God is love. That statement only makes sense when we speak of the God who is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have loved one another from all eternity. The Son loved the Father. So the, that love began in eternity. And that's what we see expressed through the life of Jesus Christ, his love for his Father. Remember the question that we started with, why do you do the right thing? Again, whether it's carrot or stick or some other means of getting yourself to do the right thing, getting your children to do the right thing, getting your employees to do the right thing, Whatever it is, these are all externally driven. It's just like the child whose mom tells him, sit down. The child, sitting in his seat, defiantly tells his mom, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. The heart's not changed. What have you really gained? What's the point? Is this what it looks like for you to serve the Lord? You're just gritting your teeth, just trying to push through. You're missing Christ. Following communion, we will sing Frank Houghton's hymn, Thou who was rich beyond all splendor. Right? We typically sing that during Christmas time because we're celebrating the birth of Jesus and we're recognizing how he has been humbled 
to take on flesh, to be born in a manger, to suffer and die. And it, one of the lines, all for love's sake, Jesus Christ became poor. He laid aside his divine privileges. He laid aside the privilege of a throne. For what? So he could be born in a manger. He laid aside the privilege of, as the song says, sapphire paved courts for a stable floor. Yet he remained fully God. This is why he was rich beyond splendor. The God beyond all praising, all for love's sake, became man. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. To raise up those who were under the curse of sin so that by faith they would find hope. But Jesus had to stoop so low for that. The Westminster Shorter Catechism explains Christ's humiliation like this. Christ's humiliation consisted in being born. Just simply being born was a humiliation, a humbling for Jesus. And that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death on the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. But praise God, death did not keep our Savior in the grave. This is the Savior and King we have who is revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Look to Jesus to save you, to save you from living a life that's driven by performance. Simply thinking your performance will make you right before God. It never will. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, there will be many who will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Look how we performed for you. He will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They didn't know Jesus. Their performance could not justify them before him. Alternately, some of us live under the crush of performance and, and we're just always trying, trying harder, trying harder. We're never measuring up. It is a blessing to agree with the scripture that says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And blessed are the poor in spirit. The kingdom of hope, heaven opens to those who recognize their spiritual poverty. This is the blessing. Trust Christ. Trust Christ's perfect performance of the law. He has fulfilled the law for you, believer. His perfect atonement for sin. He has covered your sin through his death on the cross. He has received the wrath that you deserve. As Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, what a blessing to know our sins are covered. What a blessing to know that you demonstrate your love for us 
that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you that for love's sake, for the Son's love of the Father, we have joy. We have peace. We have righteousness. We have every good and perfect gift that comes down from you. Father, we thank you for the blessing of knowing Jesus. Thank you in his name. Amen. Please rise. We'll sing.